Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome once again to Cracking Addiction. And today we have with us Celeste Yvonne. Now Celeste has written a book called It's Not About the Wine. Welcome Celeste, tell us about your book. Hi Fergal, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I wrote this book as part memoir. In fact, I think originally when I wrote it, the intention was for it to be a memoir, just my journey, how I quit drinking and how I stay sober. But as I wrote it, so many themes started coming out, things I wanted to explore with other women's stories, with research, uh, with things I was seeing culturally. And out of that came this book, which is part memoir, it's part research, and it's part inspiring stories of how other women, uh, how other mothers have quit drinking and stayed sober. And um, I'm really proud of what's come out of it. Yeah, I, I've read your book and I, I agree it is inspiring. And there are so many themes to, to draw out. I was wondering if we could focus today on your story. I mean, there's so much of your story that I think that other people can relate to. So I think in, in, in the early part of your book, you describe your, your battles with, with weight and your battles with you know, eating disorder and your, 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 your relationship with your father and mother. I mean, would you be able to discuss a little bit about that? Yeah, I grew up in a home of addiction. My father was an alcoholic. And uh, in a lot of ways, I thought that would protect me uh, from creating and developing the same problems he had. Uh, but what Why I. Why do you say that? Well, because I saw the mistakes he made. And I thought with that <clears throat> firsthand insight, I could avoid them myself. Mm. Uh, it seemed like if I avoided doing life and drinking alcohol the way he drank, I could still enjoy alcohol. I could still live life on my terms. And um, that, in part, that was me trying to stay independent. And I, I believed in my heart that I was a different person than him and I would do life differently than he did. I would not make the same mistakes he did. But what I realized pretty quickly or what I can look back on now and see is I took probably the same obsession he had towards alcohol and I steered it towards food and eating issues pretty early on. And that consumed me from so did, a young age. Did the, so did the eating come before the alcohol? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think I started yeah. Yeah. Uh, with dieting and um, <clears throat> obsessing about my weight as early as probably age 11. So your mother, I, there's one section in your book where you talk about how your mother reluctantly introduced you to Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig. How old were you at that time? I was probably uh, 11 or 12 years old when I went yeah, on my first Weight Watchers diet. Yeah. What was the thinking for you at that time? Can you remember? Yeah, I 
felt fat. Uh, my parents had always told me I was big boned and I saw the other girls in my classroom, my friends, and they were thinner than me. And keep in mind, this was also the time of heroin chic, you know, on the runways and the supermodels gracing the covers of 17 magazine were stick thin and I was not. And that was very clear to me. So I think from that age, my thought was I'm different from them. I want to be more like them. What do I have to do to make that happen? That's so sad, but it's so prevalent, isn't it? That view. What do I have to do to fit in? I have to change my body. Right. Uh, oh, looking back now, I mean, if you if you had a if you had a friend whose daughter was feeling that way, would you introduce them to Jenny Craig at Weight Watchers in the fifth grade? <laughs> no, not at all. You know, I think at the time my mom thought she was helping me fit in. You know, there's a term for this now that's called an almond mom. And it's a mom that kids grow up watching. They're constantly obsessing about their weight. They're always on a diet. They're counting how many almonds they're having. And um, when you grow up in a home like that, it seems pretty normal that you're going to be pretty obsessed about how much you're consuming each day too. So mm. inadvertently her journey became my journey. Uh, and I really mm. took it and ran with it. You know, I took probably what was a small obsession on her part and I made it a big obsession on my part. And, and all the while this was happening, your father had issues with alcohol, didn't he? Yes. And um, he was always just this really happy, charismatic drunk. Um, everyone loved him. He was high functioning until he wasn't, which was when I was 15, I was a freshman in high school and he had a stroke and uh, became permanently disabled after that and went from being my hero to what I felt was just an embarrassment overnight. I was deeply ashamed. I was angry with him. I believed it was all his fault because of the way he drank. And um, I, I stopped talking to him for a few years. I was so furious with him. But all the while, my obsession with my eating and my weight just continually ramped up over those years. Because again, you were feeling very self-conscious because you had a father who wasn't able to fulfill the role that you expected of him after his illness. I think when I look back on it now, it was a way for, yes, me to distract myself uh, from a lot of heavy emotions. And we lived in a home where we didn't talk about feelings. We certainly didn't speak openly about my father's drinking problem. Uh, it was a really dark time in our entire family's life. Um, as my dad was now disabled and still even more focused than ever on drinking and um, living the same life he lived prior to the stroke. You said something that really uh, triggered me. You said he was a functioning alcoholic until he wasn't. I mean, you know, I, I, I debate this uh, frequently with my colleagues. You know, is there such a thing as a functioning alcoholic? What do you think? I would say 
from my own firsthand experience and watching my father, mm-hmm. I think you can be a functioning alcoholic, uh, mm-hmm. depending on how you define alcoholic and defend, <laughs> depending on how you define functioning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of depends in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, whilst your father was a functioning alcoholic, I mean, he, he was still able to run a business, I believe, mm-hmm. but you know, was he present in your life during his time as when he was drinking like that? He was, um, in some ways he was always at my sporting events. I, I played volleyball, uh, up until my eating disorder consumed me so much. I didn't have energy to do anything. Uh, but he was heavily involved in my sporting events and coaching on my teams and watching me play. That was in a lot of ways, one of the few things we could connect on because he was very passionate about sports as well. Uh, in other ways, he was very distant. He had a, his own man cave. I, I feel like before man caves were even a, a widespread uh, thing. And he was always in that room, drinking beer, watching sports, um, and isolating himself from the rest of the family. So he might have been more present had he not been drinking. Yeah, I think we would have been a lot closer if he mm. wasn't so focused on alcohol and and drinking. But I'm also appreciative that he wasn't being so blatantly drunk in front of us all the time. Like he, he did mm. separate himself uh, in those times of the day where he probably was drunk. Uh, so we didn't have to witness it. And so then you went to uh, Scandinavia. Was it Sweden or Norway? It was Sweden. Sweden. I, Stockholm. Yes, I, I was Stockholm. I was outside of Stockholm um, for a month doing a exchange, a peace exchange uh, with another girl who was 16 years old. I was 16 at the time. And it was, I had drunk before, but it was my first time getting drunk where we went to a house party. We rode our bikes there. It all was so innocent until it wasn't. And I just, I just let loose. The alcohol made me feel alive. It made me feel unafraid. It made me feel like I could be the person that I couldn't be in real life. And I kept thinking, if I feel so good right now, what would another drink be like? And it just spiraled from there to the point that I have a lot of um, foggy memories from that night, uh, except that I I do recall that uh, my exchange students' parents had to come pick us up drive us home and the next day we went on the world's longest car ride to (laughs) Stockholm and I just was so sure I was going to throw up that entire trip and I told myself I will never drink again (laughs) for the eight hours we were in that car yeah I mean that that story really resonates with other stories that I've heard whereby people with 
anxiety issues, esteem issues, body image issues, relationship issues with their parents or their, their significant carers. That one time, that first time when they really get acquainted with alcohol, that the joy, the epiphanous joy, the epiphany happens and they realize how wonderful they feel when they're when they, when they really have a few drinks. It just it changes them, it empowers them. It feels How like describe that. it feels like for the first time I am finally who I was always meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Which is terrifying in hindsight. Friend, yeah. I mean, you think that this is the magic you have been searching for your whole life and you finally found it. And now everything's going to change. Yeah. It's it, when alcohol becomes your best friend, isn't it? It's um, it's it's the, a lot of people can remember the time when it first happened to them, and you wrote write so powerfully in your book. Yeah, you write about the tremor. Yes, you know, I have. You didn't have that tremor, and I still have it. I have um, hand tremors. I've had them my whole life. You know, when I was yeah. a kid, I wanted to be a doctor, and I remember my parents being like, "That's not going to happen. <laughs> your hands shake too much." But when I had that first drink in me, the tremor went away and I couldn't mm -hmm. believe it. Again, it was like, I found my superpower like this. Yeah. Now that I know what I've been missing this whole time, I, I felt unstoppable. Yeah. So this, this beautiful relationship between you and alcohol started out beautiful. How long did it take for it to become sour? You know, I think the the part where I really just could not keep drinking the way I was drinking was when I became a parent. Uh, up until that point, I felt like this is sustainable. This is something that I can do um, and I can continue to drink the way I like to drink and I wasn't impacting others. But when I became a parent, it became very clear very quickly that not only was that lifestyle unsustainable, but the impacts I would be having on people other than myself were significant. Can it you was give some examples of that impact? Uh, yeah. When I think about waking up with a hangover uh, and having a baby to take care of the anxiety and the intrusive thoughts and the frustration and even just terror of how am I supposed to do this? I can't do this. I'm not competent. I'm not a good mother. It was very hard for me to get through uh, the early months of raising a child with so much pressure. Uh, everything's on the line. You know, a, a child's counting on me to live. And I can't even get out of this hangover that's sitting on me for hours at a time every morning. It, it made me realize that I could either keep drinking the way I like to drink, or I can be the mom I wanted to be, but I could not mm. do both. Yeah. Yeah. Your friend was a very selfish friend. 
no space for any other duties, was there? Yeah, I think when a kid enters the picture, alcohol does not feel like a friend anymore. It feels mm. like um, it wants all your attention. When yeah. I kind of hit that that time in my life where I felt like I needed to choose, a lot of it came down to energy. I just did not have the energy to navigate the mental load of drinking and hangovers and also parent my children. It just seemed yeah. to come down to something as simple as where do I want to put my energy? What about work at the time? I mean, how did you, you you're a, a professional marketeer, you know, you, you, hold down a responsible job. I mean, how, how did alcohol impact upon your ability to work at that time? I worked in a business that had a pretty toxic drinking culture. Hangovers amongst myself or my colleagues weren't necessarily a negative thing. It was just par for the course. Uh, and in yeah. afternoons, it wasn't all that unusual for somebody to pop open a beer at their desk or for us to even have parties uh, out in the warehouse. Uh, so, it, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with being high functioning. I think if you are surrounding yourself with other people who are doing similar things as you and acting similarly, it's really easy to fit in and not feel like you're doing anything outside of the norm. There's that theme of fitting in again, isn't it? Oh, always. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so just, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of stories, and yet, and, and also your story also reaches a tipping point when you finally realize that you've had it. Tell us about that, if you will. Yeah, you know, I had so many convincing moments leading up to it, you know, moments where... Hmm. I I was started questioning, is this sustainable? I started questioning, uh, I how can I keep doing this when my anxiety is getting worse and worse? A lot of m specific moments that made me go, maybe this isn't the right direction, but I didn't quit yet. But it was actually on just kind of a boring <laughs> Monday in December after a weekend of a whole bunch of holiday parties that I went into work, sat down at my desk, was checking email, and I had a panic attack. And it was, for anybody who's had a panic attack, you know, it's very scary. Uh, your heart's racing. You start cold sweating. Uh, my body was trembling. And my first thought when it happened was, something's wrong. And what if I'm having a stroke, just like my father? And I was not having a stroke, I was having a panic attack. But that fear that that put in me was enough for me to say, I need to try something different. And I have to do it now. Because if I keep going the direction I'm going, I'm going to reach a point where I'm drinking the way my dad was drinking. And I saw firsthand there was no going back for him. And I can't do that to myself. I can't do that to my children. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. So I blindly 
quit drinking that day, uh, not really knowing what I was doing or how I was going to do it, but knowing that I'm going to just have to figure it out as I go. But you said something to your mother, didn't you? I told my mom. Yeah, I went to the ER, you know, when Mm. I first thought I was having a stroke. And as we were sitting in the waiting room, I asked my mom to come meet me there. And she did. And that's the first time I've ever told anybody. I said, I think I have a drinking problem. And I knew. That's a very powerful admission, isn't it? I knew when I said it, there'd be no turning back. Like my mom Mm. lived with an alcoholic for most of her life. I would never be able to take those words back to her. She would take it seriously. Uh, It would be the start of a very different direction in my life. So Mm. I realized, you know, the, the words I was saying were significant, but I knew they had to be said now. I couldn't wait any longer. Um, And then that night I I told my husband and, you know, I think I made it pretty casual. I said something to the effect of, I went to the hospital today. I think I have to quit drinking. And that was kind of the extent of it. I, I don't think I knew what else to say. And I don't think he really knew what to make of it. Um, so he just kind of respectfully said, okay. Um, and he has supported me ever since, but, um, gosh, it was an awkward conversation. (laughs) It is, isn't it? It's when you have to confront the truth and also you have to confront the truth with your nearest and dearest. It's, it, it can be a barrier for people. Now, you, you find it, I mean, you, 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 in your book, you describe how your, your difficulties in those early stages, and you also describe your first holiday sober in Mexico, I believe it was. My first holiday, the first week I was sober was actually the week of Christmas. But um, I have to remember in Australia, when you say holiday, you mean vacation. <laughs> you don't mean vacation. Christmas. <laughs> I, beg your, I beg your pardon. Your, your no, first okay. vacation was <laughs> Uh, my first vacation. Now, this was something my husband and I had been planning for a while. It was our five-year wedding anniversary, and we had planned it to be at an all-inclusive in Cancun. Uh, there were even, I mean, there's going to be so much alcohol at this place. There were even liquor dispensers in the rooms. Uh, so when I quit drinking that December, I knew that this vacation was looming. And I just didn't know what the answer was. Like, could I maybe take a break from being sober for this one week so I could enjoy our vacation? And I was terrified. I I did not know what a vacation sober would look like. What would it feel like? Would it even be a vacation if I don't have a pina colada in my hands? But um, when I got there, when I was on vacation, I did commit to my sobriety. and. It was a beautiful, powerful experience. I was able to wake up early in the mornings and work out. I was able to enjoy moments with my husband and do things I never would have done if I had been drinking. I didn't have the raging anxiety that I normally do when I'm traveling on an airplane. And um, just having so many moments to reflect and 
be present was really a first time experience for me on a vacation like that. Um, And when I got home from that vacation, I felt like I was so much stronger than I ever gave myself credit for because I got through that week where alcohol was everywhere and I got through it sober. And I think after that moment, I really did have this moment where I said, I can do this. Like I could, I could do this this. long-term and, and it'll be worth it. Now you said something that really I find very interesting. You said just a couple of minutes ago, you said, I wondered if I could enjoy my, I wondered if I should take a break from sobriety for a week so that I could enjoy my vacation. That fear of, of, of being excluded Mm-hmm. From, from from functions from society where you know, from from uh, uh, identifying that 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 society is dependent on fun is dependent on alcohol is a big barrier isn't it it's huge and i i feel like mm. that's a barrier most people have when they first realize they need mm. to quit this worry yeah. that they won't fit in or they'll lose their friends mm. or they won't be fun anymore or they won't even have fun anymore because yeah. what does fun look like when alcohol is not involved? Uh, I feel like for so long, I lost connection with what it even means to be alive when yeah. I don't have a drink in my hand. Like, what does, who am I if I'm not yeah. Uh, yeah. drinking alcohol um, and partying under the influence? Um, so it really is, especially in that first year being sober is such an exploration of understanding who you are uh, and, and kind of going back to your, to your childhood roots. Like what did you love doing as a child? Uh, what are you passionate about? I mean, these things start to shift and change when you quit drinking and it's a little scary at first because I think everyone has that fear deep down. What if nothing's enjoyable? And what I learned is, yeah, most things are even more enjoyable when you're sober and the things that aren't probably just aren't fun to begin with, if you need alcohol to have them be fun at all. (laughs) So you've got a message of hope in your book. So unfortunately we're going to have to wrap it up now. We run out of time, but I would love to explore the message of hope that you've got in your book in another episode. So I'd love to have you back on the show. But for now, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Celeste Vaughn, thank you very much. Thank you, Fergal. This was fun. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Mm-hmm.